0: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
1: I'm very pleased to have with me today, Minnesota's third district Congressman Dean Phillips. Welcome Congressman. Good to be with you, Steve. Um, as we're doing this, um, Two things I'd like you to react to that are just popping now. Um, I don't know if you are like me. I am never surprised, but I am constantly astonished when I read whatever it is I'm reading in the morning. And so there's this Mm -hmm. quote by Kevin McCarthy analyzing the situation playing out in the House of Representatives. And he basically says, I can't believe it. You know, there's just people here who just want to burn the place down, and I absorb that, ponder it for a second. And I've known him for a long time. I've known him since he was in the California Legislature. Mm-hmm. So my reaction to that is, well, you no, know, no shit, Kevin. Right? You know, better late than never. Eureka. What's your reaction to that? Are you are you astonished? Mm-hmm. Did that came out of his mouth?
0: Well, I have to say, Steve, that first of all, I wouldn't wish his job right now on my worst enemy. I mean, it is uh, it's an almost unwinnable, uh, irretractable circumstance in which he finds himself. But to your question, no. Well, yeah, astonished, but not surprised. And, you know, I, I look back at Speaker Pelosi's tenure and the way that she kind of laid down the law with those who might disrupt her agenda early I think, made somewhat clear her position, uh, got the rest of the conf- the caucus and my side, the conference, of course, on the GOP, to, uh, to understand the game plan. Uh, and she was awfully effective. You don't have to agree with her policy or her approach. But in terms of leadership, frankly, one of the best I've ever seen. Uh, you know, McCarthy's in a very different circumstance. But I do think it's fair to say that without establishing A, trust, B, the game plan, and whose side you're really on early... You've got ambiguity, and we're seeing that right now. And not only is it a detriment to the GOP, which I think, like you, I want to see a principled conservative party in America. Uh, We don't have that right now. Uh, And I think he missed an opportunity, sadly, to establish his leadership and now finds himself both sacrificing his party, but more importantly, the country.
1: The second thing is that as we're doing this, the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, from my home state of New Jersey, uh, has been on un- has been indicted on multiple counts uh, of corruption, basic bribery, and all of these things. But within the indictment, um, is that he is doing favors for cash from the chairmanship of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for the for
0: the government of of Egypt. Your reaction. I'm appalled. I mean, Steve, how, how can you look at any of this uh, evidence, uh, see the report, see the indictment, and not be appalled? And I I say time and time again, I don't give a hoot about your politics. I do care about your principles, and I don't care if it's a Democrat or Republican. I think it's appalling. You know, he's got every right to uh, remain innocent until proven guilty. This is round two for him. What I've seen in this indictment is disgusting. Uh, I personally think he should resign. I, I would expect. If this was reversed and it was a Democrat, I'm sure my colleagues on the other side would expect that. And as someone who served on the House Ethics Committee for, for two terms, Steve, uh, and found it disappointing how, uh, uh, how poorly resourced uh, and poorly uh, effective we were, how the lack of effectiveness is really disappointing. Uh, and I don't think we have internal mechanisms to hold people accountable. I think George Soros, uh, George, uh, 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 why can I, I always say George Soros, he's in the news too often i uh um, santos george you're santos not a, you're not you're not alone <laughs> you're not alone in mixing those two up i, I wonder I why all the
1: time in writing um you know they obviously have nothing to do with one another but i uh... well so some
0: would have us believe they do which is the more interesting conversation maybe for <laughs> but, later but george santos he should have resigned you know the speaker should have encouraged that because if we're going to restore faith in government which i know is a shared interest of yours and mine and most people in America, it starts with holding people accountable. And yes, he's going to step down from the Foreign Relations Committee as chairman, because that's a Senate rule. But my goodness, uh, I think it's time to resign and turn that seat over to somebody more principled. In, In January
1: of 1960, and I wrote about this today, John Kennedy gives a speech, and it's about the presidency in 1960. And he offers a philosophical frame on it and in the end he tells a story about Abraham Lincoln and he and he says that the Lincoln model is is much to his liking and he tells the story of Lincoln signing the emancipation uh, proclamation and Lincoln says to those around him as he's signing it that If he is remembered for anything, it will be this. And he wants them to know that his whole heart is in it. And that if his hand trembled, people will say that he hesitated as he signed this, which I I think is a rupture in history. Mm -hmm. A profound moment of importance in the United States and Kennedy concludes this speech by saying but his hand did not waver for he was the president of the United States Hmm. we have an election where three quarters of the country is saying don't want it now We have a politics where the media, such as it is, and I'm being overly broad in describing it, but tells the American people the country is hopelessly divided and evenly divided. Well, that's not true. I'll give you three examples One is immigration, two is guns, and the third is what they want as a choice in the election. Now, you have two political parties that the American people are told never agree with each other on anything, yet they seem to be in agreement that you're going to get what you get and like what you get. My question is, how do you think that works out not from a partisan perspective, but from a sociological perspective as someone I know who is an acute observer Mm -hmm. of the American
0: character? So I, you know, I reflect back on President Washington's farewell address, I know you know it well and probably many watching right now, and he, he, he shared with this new nation that his grave concerns uh, were faction you know, factions, which were political parties, which of course did not exist when he was president, uh, and regionalism, uh, which by the way, we've got an urban-rural divide in this country that is dangerous, uh, and also foreign interference, and look at all three, 200 and some years later, uh, all at the forefront. Uh, And frankly, uh, our duopoly, our political industrial complex, as I call it, uh, is to me antithetical uh, to the pure representational uh, democracy that I think our founders really intended. Uh, They were mortified about political parties. I don't think they ever envisioned there would be a duopoly like we have now. And to your point, it seems that the powers that be on both sides of the aisle agree on one thing and one thing only, and that is perpetuating the status quo. Uh, I think regularly, Steve, about whether or not it's time for competition. I've argued publicly I think the Democratic uh, bench should rise right now and provide competition in a primary. It's healthy, provides better product at better value. It doesn't matter if it's people uh, uh, or a consumer product. Uh, That's a truth. I also think both parties could use a little bit of competition. Right now we have this dynamic that you know well. Uh, There's magnetism to the corners, and only a third party that could triangulate power to some degree could push us to the middle. And as a member of the Problem Solvers Caucus in Congress, I think that's a good example. 32 Democrats, 32 Republicans. That serves somewhat as that magnet for the middle. You know, we don't operate like a party. Uh, I wish we did more often. But that's, I think, what A, the country needs. That's what I think the country is begging for. And I believe only recently, in the first time in modern history, uh, have those who uh, consider themselves independent Uh, uh, been more numerous than those who identify as Democrats and Republicans. That does not mean that they will vote for an independent candidate immediately for president, but it surely means that they're disgusted with the system. And frankly, I understand why. Joe Scarborough said something on Morning Joe uh,
1: a week or so back. That is, that is very true. Now there was a behavior um, amongst Republicans that I watched uh, from the green room that I watched from the television sets during my decade uh, as an analyst at MSNBC. And it was people saying one thing off camera and the complete opposite on camera, and then watching that metastasize over the seven year basis into an unbending, unyielding, cult of personality where you are required if you're a member of such cult of personality to submit what is true right your own intellectual agency and sovereignty right you know goes through the prism of well the leader will tell you what's true what's Mm -hmm. what's real joe scarborough says it's not a single democrat which is true who comes on air ever not one who, after praising Biden as the greatest president since FDR, doesn't, as soon as that camera goes off, say, I'm really worried. I don't think he can win. What what do you say about that? And... Do you get the cynicism that that injects into the system?
0: Damn right. Five years ago, before I was serving in Congress, I was one of those cynics. I was becoming appalled at what I sensed was exactly what is occurring. By the way, Joe can only say that because he has not had me on his show yet. Uh, I think I'm the only Democrat that has said the quiet part out loud with, you can imagine, not only is there no reward, uh, it's a damn good way to end a career in politics, particularly Uh, With our two party system. But I feel compelled to speak the truth, because the reason I did this in the first place uh, was I was tired of watching the same thing you're just describing. It's not unique to one party or the other. Uh, It's a disease. Uh, It's a disease of uh, authenticity, uh, uh, of truth. And frankly, for we Democrats, I think it's even more important. I think the bar should be a little bit higher for us because we're we're emerging as the party of truth, uh, the one of the only party of truth right now in the country. And that's why I think on questions like Senator Menendez, on questions like not not what do you think of Joe Biden? I think Joe Biden is a wonderful, compassionate, decent, competent man. I think his administration uh, did a fine job of being the bridge that he promised. That's a different question, what you think of the president, what you think of his policy, then what do you think about the future? Uh, I just look at the numbers just like you do, Steve, and it's so clear. And I don't know how Americans can comport their representatives who see the same numbers, live in their same communities, hear the same conversations, and yet are unwilling to simply say it when there's a light on and a camera lens open. And look, at if you can't do it then, of course, if you're an American citizen, you think they're, they're probably not telling the truth about anything. And that is part of this crisis uh, that I think we're facing in our country. And uh, we need leaders on both sides of the aisle to emerge who are willing to say the truth. We also need a political reward for it. That's the problem right now, Steve. Why would people uh, pursue something that would end their careers uh, or tarnish their legacies? You look at Liz Cheney, you know, who just for pursuing principle, not only was removed from GOP leadership where she was number three, probably would have been Speaker of the House one day, But essentially removed from the entire Congress because of one thing, not because she wasn't conservative enough. She was the most conservative member of the House of Representatives, according to the Heritage Foundation. She pursued principle and look at what happened. So you can imagine, why do any of my colleagues look at that and say, well, I'm going to try to do the same thing? Uh, You know, by the way, there's a wonderful book about Hubert Humphrey out right now that tells the same remarkable story of a young Minneapolis mayor who was counseled to not get in front of his party in 1948 in Philadelphia and exclaim that it was time for them to get out of the shadow of states' rights into the bright light of human rights. He was counseled that if he took those 10 minutes and made that case, that his career was over. And when you think of that trembling hand, he trembled a lot before he issued that speech, but it actually created his entire career. There would be no Hubert Humphrey who became senator and vice president and almost president, If he didn't show that courage to speak the truth to a party that was not ready to hear it, you know, the absence of that kind of courage in politics right now uh, is is dangerous. And I think something that we should all be speaking about. I see the potential in many of my colleagues, but I also see the fear. And uh, that is part of what I call the angertainment problem. Uh, And people are holding people accountable, frankly, uh, for what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. Let's talk about fear for a second.
1: Um, What percentage of your colleagues do you assess as being fearful to be in a crowd in a situation
0: where politics is the venue? (laughs) Uh, I would argue a majority. Uh, It's hard. Uh, it's hard when we have a system that attacks you for being honest, that catches you uh, misstating one word uh, that can be career ending. Uh, that's something that we have to reckon with uh, as a culture. I understand why people would be fearful. I, look at, I ran against a guy in 2018, Eric Paulson, who was notorious for being a good guy, a decent guy, a relatively moderate guy, but who did not want to show up in front of people. Uh, he was part of GOP leadership. I think he was conscientious of wanting to say the truth, but knowing that in those forms, it would be too complicated. I use that as my mechanism to win election. Uh, I did an ad that featured Bigfoot of all people to try to find Eric Paulson. So I understand. uh, And I think it is part of the problem. By the way, a lot of my colleagues are scared for their safety right now. Increasingly, my Republican colleagues are more fearful uh, of angry Trumpers than they are of Democrats I know friends that have res- have retired from Congress, good conservative members of Congress who've retired rather than subject their family uh, to the threats and to the fear. Many of my Democratic colleagues, of course, are facing the same. So they're fearful of having to be shamed for telling the truth. They're also fearful for their safety and their human beings. And if there's anything, if there's no other lesson I've learned in Congress so far is that every one of us, whether it's the president to House leadership, Senate leadership, every one of us is a human being. And we're fallible. Uh we have good days, we have bad days, and we have fears. And um, I think we should provide a little bit more space and place for humanity on both sides of the aisle. Um, I know Liz I know Liz
1: Cheney extremely well. Um, been friends with her for a long time, mm-hmm. worked for her father in the in the White House, mm-hmm. in part, um ran a campaign for John McCain against uh against Mitt Romney. Mm-hmm. Um, who's a pretty buttoned up guy, Mm -hmm. Um, both Liz Cheney and Mitt Romney lost it at the people that they correctly held responsible for inciting this madness on, on January 6th that you're there. And so you are probably a better person than I am, A, and B, Being from Minnesota, and Minnesota nice, I'm from New Jersey. (laughs) No such thing. I I don't know how I could conceivably restrain myself if I was a member of Congress from commenting in a way that may not make my kids proud, right? If I hear a Republican member worrying about the safety of their personage in the district from the chaos that they've that they've let loose. And I and I'm just wondering when you are around these people in close proximity against what I know is the fierceness of your convictions, the depth of your patriotism, How do you keep the contempt
0: from boiling over? How, Not how, how do you even function in Not the, easily. the institution? Not easily. And I, it's it's a daily struggle, I think, for many of us. There's no question. I, In fact, I, you know, I was in the House chamber on January 6th, trapped uh, with about 20 colleagues in the gallery. Most of those on the floor escaped. Uh, We faced about 15 to 20 minutes where we really did think, Steve, that it was the end. Didn't know at that time that they weren't all armed and pursuing us distinctly assumed they were. And uh, my colleagues in tears, making calls and texting home to say goodbye. It was a, it it was a horrifying experience for 15 minutes. Anybody who's been through trauma of any kind, I have empathy for particularly those who uh, believe that their lives are coming to a close and, When we got out of the chamber and escaped to a a safe place, uh, I was with Liz Cheney and a bunch of Republicans uh, and Democrats when uh, Trump came on TV, and Liz Cheney pointed to the TV and said, he's responsible. It's time we hold him to account. And Steve, there were accolades, there were applause, there was unanimity in a way that I literally have not experienced in Congress since and never had before, where we just simply felt aligned. And it was a beautiful, memorable moment. And I look now to what happened to her, uh, to Adam Kinzinger, to others, uh, the 10 that voted to impeach him, where he was surely guilty. Uh, I think nine of them are gone now, nine, few of them on their own accord, more of them removed by primaries. And that alone makes it harder, not just the lack of principle sometimes that uh, I have to confront, but to know that the people that had the courage uh, weren't supported, uh, weren't protected, weren't defended. You know that to me is more heartbreaking, more dangerous, and more consequential than just about anything. And now, with all that said, Steve, you know we we can't choose our families, we can't choose our coworkers. And you know, damn, I'm elected to do a job. If I don't meet people in the middle, if I don't find the humanity in everybody. Uh, it makes it impossible. And that's my job on foreign affairs, too. I've got to sit with world leaders and representatives of governments uh, that are not good people, that don't treat their people with respect. Some of them even kill them. Uh, it's not comfortable, it's not easy, and it's incompatible, and incongruent with my principles. But in democracy, we got to do a job. And I find every day uh, the courage to do that. And i got to tell you, the Problem Solvers Caucus is a remarkable table at which we don't just sit together, we we open our hearts together. And after January sixth, we had we had challenges. We had to sit down as a as a family of Democrats and Republicans, uh, share our perspective, uh, be forthright and honest. And that's what you do. And if you do that, at least you can find some common ground. You can grant some forgiveness. It doesn't always make it easy, but at least it provides some space for humanity. There are some on the other side of the aisle that I cannot stand, that I detest, that I think are dangerous to our country and, frankly, the world. Uh, But the overwhelming majority of my GOP colleagues, despite my disappointment in them, uh, I have a responsibility and uh, I'm going to pursue it. But damn, it's hard sometimes. It's hard sometimes. What's the what's the demarcation
1: line, right? What's mm-hmm. the disappointment line, right? Um, I'll give you somebody, you know, that I know, you know. I'll put I'll put in my disappointment category is Lamar Alexander, mm-hmm. somebody that I worked for, very decent human being, but did not rise uh, to the mm-hmm. level of his potential, really, in a career of public service, right? You know, so he's the youngest governor in Tennessee yeah. history in 1982. But really, right? You know what? What Lamar Alexander's um, starring role, so to speak, was that he passed up was this vacant moment in 2016 to 2020, where you know we have a combination of people who get the taste of sedition on their tongue and like it and people who become wallflowers as the extremism, you know, rises all around them and, and a very, very few, um, you know, who become lions in the, in the, in the moment in defense of all of this stuff. And, um, I guess like what percentage of these people for you, on that disappointment side of the line versus the threat side of the line I mean what what is the threat is it twenty percent 25 25 thirty percent of them what's the what's the, how do you how do you think about that
0: I you know, in my estimation Steve, there are probably a dozen House members that I think are uh, incompetent and dangerous uh, sometimes by ignorance some by sometimes by intention. But I would say that makes, you know, 90 some percent uh, in the category of somewhat disappointed. And by the way, look, like friends and family and people we care deeply about, uh, we can be disappointed in them for a whole host of reasons. Uh, But doesn't mean it has to end the relationship. Doesn't mean that you condemn them forever. Uh, But that's that's probably the right ratio Uh, in the Senate. I mean, it's got to be the same. What's what startles me and shocks me Is it's sometimes the best educated, the most pedigreed people uh, who are the most disappointing, and frankly, uh, who are the most threatening uh, because they're using those platforms, that experience in remarkably savvy, um, intentional, and I think very dangerous ways. And I think they know who they are, and you know who they are. Uh, And at the end of the day, it's also leadership. You know, uh, Kevin McCarthy came to the floor and essentially held Trump accountable only to go to Mar-a-Lago soon thereafter, um, and kiss the ring. You know, that's sad and that's, uh, dangerous. And I just, to your point, there, there are a lack of lions and we need them. We need them now. I also have to say this though, and you know, when you face these moments of, if I speak the truth and I know that's uh, removal or losing an election, uh, you have a choice to make. Is it better to still be at the table? Uh, I think about, uh, I think about Dr. Birx, I think about um, Anthony Fauci, I think about others who served in the last administration at that table, people who probably knew it was not in their best interest professionally, personally, or otherwise, reputationally, to sit on that cabinet, uh, to sit in that administration. I think some actually chose to do so for the right reasons, and history probably won't recognize that. So I do understand why sometimes you have to uh, plug the nose uh, or bite the tongue Uh, and do the things that are sometimes uncomfortable, Uh, but the pervasiveness of this and the fact that it frankly could have been prevented if, and this is, I guess, this should be the basis of this whole conversation. There would be no Trumpism if Americans felt heard, if they felt appreciated, if they felt their issues were being addressed, and if they felt they had access. And every damn one of my colleagues, because of the system, not their fault, because of the system, has to spend 10,000 hours per week collectively raising money. And from whom do you raise money? People that have it. So is it surprising that the overwhelming majority of people throughout this country, really good people of all kinds of politics, uh, are disappointed and disgusted? And then they see news about Santos and about Menendez uh, and corruption and bribery uh, and a lack of principle. Uh, they, I understand why they think the whole place is broken. Uh, and as someone who's trying to restore that faith and sees it so clearly, You know, there are some foundational things we could change. We should have changed. And I hold, frankly, past administrations, past members of Congress, past leaders in Congress as accountable, because I feel they weren't doing their fundamental jobs of listening and representing people who are really, really angry right now. And I don't want to dismiss that anger uh, of Trumpism. Many Trumpers voted for Barack Obama, for goodness sakes. They may have voted for Bernie Sanders had he been the nominee. They want somebody... To burn the place down. And I'm not surprised that some of my colleagues buy into that very, they're doing it right now, Steve. They're burning the place down because that's the culture of this movement right now. It's a culture of anger. So yes, I'm disappointed now. I'm probably even more disappointed in past leaders who were in their suits on national TV every night in Washington, DC, and didn't spend enough darn time at home listening, learning, and representing and that, to me, is the fund foundational, foundational reason that we're facing this quagmire in which we find ourselves. A hundred years ago,
1: 1923, uh, Warren Harding yeah. has a heart attack in San Francisco. When he dies, he's literally he's the most popular president the country has ever had at the at the moment of of his death, with the possible exception of of George Washington. Mm-hmm. Um it's the Roaring Twenties, right? The, the French call it the Anne fall, the crazy yeah. years. The the That is not the case in Germany. 1920s are angry right. years. And I think, and I've called this decade the angry
0: 20s. Are we living in Weimar America? I sure as heck hope not. But I think the analogy is a very important one to make because... That anger is, I think, the same. The scapegoating of a people, in this case, anti-Semitism, racism, uh, the fact that that's rising, I think, is uh, uh, congruent with what we saw in that era in Germany. Uh, We saw a country that felt uh, disenfranchised, uh, unappreciated, unheard, kind of shamed, uh, and the other. And I think that's how a lot of Americans feel right now. And I do not want to shame them. That's a natural human feeling. And we... Elected officials have a responsibility to listen to them, to prevent what happened in Germany. Never have we ever seen a country, a democratic nation, you know, move from relative principle uh, into authoritarianism and to dictatorship of such whores uh, that were Adolf Hitler and the Third Reich. So if we don't look at that, if we're not students of history and recognize uh, that we still have time, but if we don't do something, that anger is only going to metastasize It won't be unique to one party or the other, and it will spread geographically and otherwise. And I'm concerned. I don't want to say I'm concerned about uh, what Germany uh, became in the 1930s and what they did to the world. But sure, I'm concerned about our democracy, about our integrity, about our unity, about the very things that George Washington warned us about. So uh, I wish we'd be mindful of that. And I do believe, and this is the good news, Steve, it's untold, it's underappreciated, unrecognized, but... Most member of Congress, despite their policy differences, despite disappointment sometimes and the unwillingness to be principled, overwhelmingly decent people, you know, most of the country will not know who they are because we only reward the troublemakers, the bombastic, the dividers. But I do want people to know, whether it's the 64 at the problem solvers table, whether it's uh, the overwhelming majority of people from around the country, you know, I do think we all want the same things. I think we have a reward system that's perverse. And I think we have too many people too focused on winning the next election and not focused enough on really listening to people. Democrats have to get out into rural America and really intentionally listen. Republicans have to spend a little bit of time in suburban and urban America and understand what we face in suburban urban America and recognize that we have shared problems that require shared solutions. And we have a shared obligation to prevent God forbid, another civil war uh, to prevent the erosion of national integrity and unity. Uh, It's not rocket science. It's pretty darn human. And we have time, but uh, we got to get to it. And I'm grateful that I do have some colleagues that I think uh, I can count on on both sides uh, to bring us there. Um, I want to talk about
1: generational change in this country. How do you think about it?
0: Well, I'm 54 years old, and I'm about three years younger than the median age in the United States House. You know, I'm a youngin. I think that number is 65 years old in the Senate. And, you know, I don't, I'm not ageist. Generational, generational change is, is one thing, but what I really care about is generational diversity, because back to our founders, the People's House in particular is supposed to be as representational of the United States of America as humanly possible. And we're not And not only that, Steve, we are not populated with people with the competencies that we need to address some really important issues today, many of them based on high-tech, hard-to-understand concepts that require either engineers, uh, coders, and people in generations that have much better holistic understanding of these challenges, artificial intelligence, fintech, uh, uh, climate change. There are some issues that really require younger people in perspective. So I'm not saying we should have a Congress that's all 28 and 32 years old. What I'm saying is that we have too many people who make a long career out of something that should be uh, short-term, should be service-oriented, and not a lifelong profession. And when you're here 30, 40 years, uh, I think that does two things. Prevents a younger generation and the best and brightest of Americans from even finding space and place to participate. And it generates complacency because we're human. And that's why I do favor, I'm a, I am know I'm an outlier as a Democrat, but I favor term limits because I think that would help. And then lastly, most importantly, Steve, I see how my colleagues vote, interact, position themselves and communicate when their career or their tenure is coming to an end. And that independence, uh, John McCain was a perfect example of that. Perfect example. I think when he gave the thumbs down to the ACA repeal, when he knew his career was coming to an end. He did something bold, courageous. Would he have done so if he was going to serve another six years? I don't know. But I see behavior like that from so many who are liberated when they know that they don't have to stand for reelection. And I think we should develop a culture, and invest in that kind of culture. And I think well, the only way to do so is by limiting terms. You know, not have at least a third of the United States Congress that would be free to do what's best for the country, not what's best for their careers. I,
1: I never would have underestimated John's capacity to figure out how to give a middle finger on the floor in <laughs> the United States. <laughs> that was that was very well that was very well earned, and it yes, will yes uh, it will be remembered for a long time. I um I, I want to just do you ever look at the generational change issue through the lens of it being a moral proposition?
0: You know, that's a, that's a good question. It hasn't been asked in that way before. Uh, but I do believe so. Yes, it should be looked at through that lens. Uh, it should be looked at through the lens of uh, of representation. By the way, I think it should be looked at first and foremost through the lens of participation. You know, the, the generations that we most need to engage, the most need to be inspired to serve the public uh, are the very generations we're talking about. And like anything else, if you don't have an interest, exposure, ambition at early stages of your life, it's harder to capture public servants uh, well into their careers. So I think it's a moral imperative uh, that we engage young people. We invest in civic education, which has been diminished and uh, disappointingly so I think now for, for many generations. I'm working on a lot of plans right now, Steve, relative to national service propositions. How do we not just inspire military service, but Peace Corps, AmeriCorps? How do we, if not mandate, because I think that would be hard, how do we encourage, inspire, reward young people who wish to take a year before they enter the workforce and serve our nation in some way, shape or form? You know, that is also a moral imperative. I look to countries that are doing that right now. They're more cohesive. uh, They're more connected. They're more unified. uh, And they're more patriotic. And uh, I think that is another uh, obligation of ours. And, uh, you know, I think the youngest member of the House right now is Maxwell Frost. I think he's in his late 20s. Uh, And, you know, it'll take him some time to get up to total speed. He's a remarkably talented young man at that age. Uh, I sure as heck could have served in Congress when I was in my late 20s. But I think just from a purely representational perspective, we have to have more young people in Congress to make their cases, to do the listening, uh, to introduce and inject into Congress some 21st century thinking. uh, And frankly, socially, I have to say, I think the social design of Congress is flawed. The organizational design is surely flawed. Uh, And the physical design of Congress is flawed. The social design would be improved with uh, a younger generation, uh, at least enough of the younger generation being participants. And we need it. And we should open those doors. And lastly, when you have to raise 10, 15, $20 million to run for the United States Congress and do it every two years, if you don't think that's too big of a barrier to entry to even the best and brightest middle-aged folks, let alone young people, how in the world, how in the world, can they approach something like that? So I think we've got to really take a good hard look at how we finance campaigns, the barriers to entry, uh, and and both parties. By the way, we need young conservatives, we need young progressives, uh, and we should be talking more about that uh, because if we don't, we're going to be turning over the keys to the very people who inspired me to get in this business in the first place?
1: Um, Last night, the president was at a fundraiser, and there's a pool report from the fundraiser that's written by Alex Thompson at Axios. And the pool report details the president's remarks. The president gets up. And he tells a story about what induced him to run for president, which is the Charleston Massacre. And says a few more words, and then he almost verbatim tells that story again in front of a crowded, crowded room. There's the incident where he walks off the set. There is the reality of the short-inch steps on Air Force One. There is a constancy of befuddlements that are real, um, and then apart from it, and, and no doubt unfair, but reality, um, a billion-dollar propaganda effort has had its impact. Um, it's scored. Um, they've run up the score. you have a you have a huge percentage of the country um that says he's unable to run, shouldn't run, doesn't want him to run. And the results right now, seven years on from when Trump came down the escalator despite all the damage, is looking out, looking out at a race where Trump is ahead. Mm-hmm. And so I like to think I I like to think I know what I'm talking about in a presidential race. I believe James Carville knows what he's talking about. And he said right now, the reality is, is that President Biden would be an underdog in this in this race. Mm-hmm. So I just I, I want to I just want to put a period on that for a second. I was a moderate New Jersey Republican. Um, I could have been a Clinton Democrat. Um, I was a child of the 80s. And so my first election, I voted for George Herbert Walker Bush. Right. And I wasn't alone. Um, At the University of Delaware, overwhelming majority in 1988 of Mm 18-year-olds voted for the Republican candidate, though that Mm -hmm. may be, right, somewhat unthinkable in in recent eras. That party, right, the party that Horace Greeley, as it was founded, so this will be the greatest party of freedom that's ever been, Um, the party of James Garfield and Teddy Roosevelt, it's gone right it has it's gone it's it's something that's been taken from me right and something that as a life experience almost every person i ever worked with in politics abdicated the principles that i thought we shared right to to a person um what does the democratic party mean to you What should it stand for talk about your feelings for the party to me i loved the republican party but it was insignificant to me against the country and the country's interests it was meaningless to me john kennedy talked about this what's the purpose of a party if it's not to advance a great national interest so for me when it detached from that it died it died in my heart Mm -hmm. But what does the Democratic Party mean to you? What does it stand for? How, how does it attach itself to you emotionally?
0: Let me back up to my very beginnings, which is uh, losing my father, uh, Captain Artie Pfeffer, in the Vietnam War. I was six months old. He took an ROTC scholarship because uh, he couldn't afford college. Uh, his father died when he was a little boy. My grandma, Ruth, worked at a department store to try to make ends meet. And uh, he was sent to Vietnam as a captain in the army and died in a helicopter crash in Pleiku uh, just when I was six months old. My mom was widowed, 24. We lived with my great grandparents for about two and a half years uh, in St. Paul. And uh, that's how my life began. I was adopted then into a remarkable family by an amazing father, Eddie Phillips, who who raised me. And I was raised in in a family that um, told me a lot about anti-Semitism in Minneapolis, uh, which was a hotbed of... Racism and anti-Semitism uh, in the mid-century, uh, and they were passionate, devoted uh, supporters of Hubert Humphrey, and and I listened to their stories: uh, how this young mayor came into the city and set up a human rights commission, uh, stood up for uh, the people that were voiceless, powerless, and um, they told me stories of, of course, World War II and, and the Holocaust, and and how. Uh, it was President Roosevelt that ultimately, although, of course, late, uh, came to the rescue. Uh, and in 1980, Steve, I was uh, I was 11 years old. I went to school one morning. And who shows up to speak at our assembly but John Anderson, who I didn't know at the time. All I knew, he was running for president. And he spoke to us. And I remember two things he talked about, the need for independence in our politics. Of course, he was a Republican from Illinois running as an independent and he talked about money in politics that day, none of which meant a lot to me at the time. I went to dinner that night in Minneapolis uh, with my grandparents and my great-grandparents, my parents. My grandmother was the advice columnist, Dear Abby. And I remember telling her that evening at dinner that this man who was going to win the presidency came to speak to us. And she reminded me that if he was speaking to a, a bunch of 11-year-olds, he probably Perfect. wasn't going to win, which she was right. But she stopped and she said, are you a Democrat or Republican? And I was said, Grandma, I'm 11. I don't even know what they are. And she said, You're a Democrat. And she explained to me why using Humphrey and using uh, standing up for the underdog, uh, you know, fighting for people's rights and equality. And at that time, it was uh, both persuasive, uh, it was almost like a religion and, in my family. Uh, and that's why I became a Democrat. And then the more I discovered, the more I read about Humphrey, the more I learned about. Uh, the roots, the more that I discovered that Hubert Humphrey converted the Democratic Party for one that was horrifically racist, when I saw that a single man's act of courage in his early 30s could literally change a party, literally, in a 10-minute speech, change the Democratic Party, uh, really inspired me. And of course, grew up you know, celebrating Kennedy and the like, uh, despite coming from a business family, you know, one that really recognized that you can be pro-business and pro-labor. They're not mutually exclusive, they're mutually mandatory. So that's kind of, I I share that in the context of that's my upbringing. And I believe that both parties, I think it's fair to say, particularly the Republican Party has lost its way. I think the Democratic Party still embodies many of those values. I don't think they're expressed in policies and approaches in the way that I think we could and should. I don't think we accommodate perspectives and um, issues and people uh, who have a lot to share, and I think it's time for both parties to um, to assess that, and that's why I do argue that competition is good. Competition might be the only thing that forced both parties to have a little bit of a reckoning. Uh, I'm a proud Democrat. Uh, I come from a state in which uh, we're the only state that has the Democratic Farmer Labor Party, farmers and laborers, not usually voting Democratic anymore. Uh, but uh, but it's that it's this nature of still trying to look out for people who are struggling to really give them voice, to listen intently. And I still believe in that uh, really deeply. I also believe in a lot of conservative principles, which is why I think many feel homeless right now. You know, you can be socially compassionate and fiscally responsible and wonder, where's my home? And I'd like to inject some of those conservative principles into the democratic party. Uh, When I say conservative principles about uh, our defense, uh, our foreign policy, Uh, our fiscal responsibility, how we create a budget, how we spend, how we hold people accountable. I'd like to see the Republican Party embrace a little bit more of the compassion and the decency uh, that I think is necessary for both parties to to use as their foundation. So I'll close with this. You know, I work on democratic messaging. I sit at the leadership table and the DPCC, the Democratic Policy and Communications Committee, our charge is to message and uh, distribute uh, our perspectives. And I'll confess that when people ask, what is a Republican, it's pretty easy to say, you know, small government, low taxes, strong national defense, state's rights, can name a few words. For a Democrat, if you ask them the same question, you know, it could be paragraphs to describe what it means. And as a branding guy, Steve, you know, until a brand is easy to recognize, easy to understand, both visually uh, and in articulation, it's hard to build it, and it's hard to share it, and it's hard to succeed. And that's why I'm I think that's why actually Democrats aren't doing better electorally right now than we are, even when facing somebody like Donald Trump. So that's a long winded answer to a really even longer question. But uh, those are my that's my take. I have my final question coming up, but I want to share a story with you. Um,
1: I did not know that that your father uh, was a uh, military officer who had been killed in action. Have you been to Vietnam?
0: Uh, Steve, in fact, I'm I'm glad you asked, because I went for the first time this year, and I got to visit the very site in which he took his last breath, and sounds kind of strange to say, but I really got to take my first breath uh, at, at this age, and it was an extraordinary experience, not just to visit the place where my dad died, but I have to say, to experience the hospitality, the forgiveness, the friendship of the Vietnamese people, the very people. Huh? Extraordinary. Extraordinary. And something that I wish more Americans could experience, a a culture of forgiveness and decency and friendship and hospitality uh, that changed me, Uh, changed my perspective on our foreign policy, changed my perspective on humanity, uh, inspired me to ensure that young boys and girls who've lost their moms and dads in Iraq, Afghanistan, someday can also go back to their countries and perhaps experience uh, the same feeling that I felt, which is that Reconciliation is always possible. And frankly, if the Vietnamese can forgive us, Democrats and Republicans can also forgive one another uh, and move to the future. And I think that uh, that had a profound uh, effect on me.
1: Um, The story I was going to tell you uh, is this. So John McCain, um, not widely known, but John was the chaplain for the POWs and The POWs, as you know, were horrendously tortured. Um, And then two of them, John McCain and Pete Peterson, who becomes the ambassador, the first American ambassador to Vietnam, along with Senator Kerry, um, play a leading role with Bill Clinton. Warriors, uh, a president who did not serve. In leading to a reconciliation uh between the two countries. And so reconciliation at a core level was an important theme over and over again in in John's John's life. And and he had a relationship with Mo Udall, the famous uh Democratic uh presidential candidate multiple times and as mo udall of arizona in his later years uh was laying dying john mccain of the opposite party uh would go to it was either i think it was walter reed and would read to him at his at his at his bedside and john loved to tell mo udall stories Mm -hmm. and one of his favorite was from new hampshire and it was the story of Mo Udall walking into a barbershop and Mo Udall walks into this barbershop and he says to the barber and the three customers, hi, I'm Mo Udall and I'm running for president. And the barber looks at him and says, yeah, because we were just laughing about that (laughs) before before he walked in. I think if you went to the state of New Hampshire and you said, I'm Dean Phillips and I'm running for president, I'm seeking to become the Democratic nominee. There would be a lot of people screaming in Washington and a lot of people cheering in other parts of the country. Are you thinking about it?
0: And if you're not, why not, given everything that you said today? Yeah, I I, it, I am thinking about it. I haven't ruled it out. I think it's a steep slope. You know that. I think there are people who are more proximate, uh, better prepared to campaign with national organization, national name recognition, which I do not possess. But I do feel strongly and I have a conviction that uh, it's important for democracy uh, to have choices, uh, to have competition, particularly in light of what I'm reading, uh, the polling, the data, and what I'm sensing in my own intuition. And I'm concerned. Uh, I'm concerned that there is no alternative. I'm concerned that something could happen between now and next November that would make the Democratic Convention in Chicago uh, an unmitigated disaster. And for a party that is acting as the adults in the room, thank goodness, I'm concerned that we are not as it relates to uh, our electoral strategy. So I'm considering it. Uh, I do still think there's some time for somebody to enter. I'm still encouraging others who I think are better uh, uh, prepared right now to run a great campaign. But I have thought about it. And, uh, and I recognize there'd be laughter, there'd be distaste, there would be disgust amongst many. But I also have that sense uh, that the country is begging for alternatives. You know, whether that's me, whether it's somebody else, uh, time will tell. But I think it's important that somebody recognize uh, that this is the time. Don't wait till 2028. My goodness, serve your country now when we need you. That's my message. And I love campaigning. I love people. I love listening. Boy, if I became president at some point, Steve, I'd have a bipartisan cabinet. I would host dinners at the White House every month with randomly selected Americans from all around the country of all politics and backgrounds to just listen to them, not just host state dinners and tuxedos, but to host Americans in their White House, uh, to not just talk bipartisanship, but to engage in a bipartisan basis. There are so many ways uh to ensure that everybody's invited to ensure that representation began with listening uh, and to steer this country in a much different path. Now, whether that message would resonate with Democrats is another question. I surely believe it would resonate with uh, just about every uh, American outside of the hardcore Dems and Republicans. But these are things on my mind. And at the end of the day, I have to say this. You know, uh, Joe Biden always says, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. You know, if it is Joe Biden against Donald Trump, my goodness, it's a no-brainer. I'll do do everything I can, everything I can to ensure that he stands the best chance to be reelected. There is no question. The alternative is horrifying. But that's also why in a head-to-head matchup, Nikki Haley uh, outperforms Biden beyond the uh, margin of error, uh, because it demonstrates that most of the country is also tired of Donald Trump. By the way, they're only three or four years apart in age. Uh, Trump is dangerous to the country. Uh, The thing that uh, Biden is suffering from, unfortunately, right now is something he can't change. Uh, And there's some wisdom in him that is quite remarkable and that I honor. But I also know what the country is asking for. And how can you ignore uh, the numbers you see in a country that prides itself on representational democracy? That's how I see it. So we'll see. I think it's unlikely, uh, but not impossible.
1: Congressman Dean Phillips, the gentleman from the 3rd District of Minnesota, thank you for your time.
0: Thank you, Steve. Keep the faith.
1: Thank you for watching. Make sure you subscribe to our channel so you never miss a video. Also, for more content just like this, please consider joining our warning premium community. You can find out more in the description below.